On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. Funding for the E-Series is provided by the Dr. John A. Lusk Fund for Hospice and Palliative Care Education. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today, we continue this installment of the E-Series with The Intersection of Faith and Health at End of Life, a conversation between CEO Trent Cockrum and Hospice of the Piedmont Chaplain Tim Fagan. Together, they will thoughtfully discuss how intersections in an individual's life journey not only shape how they live, but also how they die by providing opportunities to engage hope, increase well-being, and overcome fears at end of life. Tim felt called into the ministry at the age of 19 and later received his Master's of Divinity from Duke University. He served as a congressional pastor for more than 14 years prior to becoming a hospice chaplain and is now celebrating 24 years of service to Hospice of Randolph and Hospice of the Piedmont. Tim has been married to his wife, Vicki, for 31 years, and together they have five children and six grandchildren. Tim brings to this conversation a wealth of knowledge from both his parish positions as well as his many years of experience at the bedside supporting individuals at end of life. Let's listen in. Tim, it's great to be with you. Um, I might also mention to our uh, listeners that um, you are just finishing a 24-year career as a chaplain in our organization, um, a fact that, that I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge. So what a great privilege it is for me to have um, an opportunity to have this very impactful and incredibly important conversation with you. So um, great to be here. Likewise, great to be Thank here. Thank you. So, you know, as we begin our conversation, I, I want to start with just sort of what I talked about, which is you've worked in our organization for almost a quarter century. Um, you know, it's important to note that you uh, came into our organization um, as a part of the merger. You were a legacy hospice of Randolph County um, a chaplain, a team member and came into Hospice of the Piedmont um, in October of 2019. Um, And so might you tell us a little bit about just your, what led you here? Um, I I grew up in a parsonage, so um, uh, ministry was something that was was not foreign to me. Uh, Later in, as a young man, I I felt a call to ministry and, and went through college and seminary and served churches. And during uh, the last church that I served in the 80s, I had lots of encounters with what was then Hospice of Randolph County. Um, we had patients in our, our parish that uh, were being served. And so I came to the team conferences and got to know our, our um, initial CEO, Billy Von Cannon, and Marilyn Paris, the volunteer coordinator, and lots of other people. And... Um, so I, I got familiar with it, and um, during the late 80s, I left the pastorate and, and pursued some other things. Uh, among those things were um, marketing. I worked in marketing for a cellular phone company, and uh, part of my job was to authorize expenditures on local sponsorships and advertising, uh, special events and things like that. That put me interfacing again with what was then called Center of Living, Home, Health, and Hospice, as we uh, I helped to, to coordinate the, the dinner dance, which was 
at that time an annual event. Uh, after I left that, I, I went into to insurance and one of the things I kept trying to do was to close a corporate um, insurance coverage plan with uh, Center of Living. And I'd been there three or four times. They were waiting to get some other things in place before they made a move on it. And I thought, well, I, I've had enough rejection in Guilford County. I'm going to go to, to uh, Randolph County and get a taste of that rejection. And, and as I was waiting to see Billy, uh, the lady that I'd interfaced with in marketing came out and said it should be leaving in three weeks. And I thought, you know, I enjoyed marketing. I'm going to apply for that job. Went back and spoke to the CEO. She gave me some written assignments. And three weeks later, I was on board. Had uh, lots, of, um, lots of success in the you know, first couple of years. And then the clinical director asked me, would you please consider prayerfully taking on the role as a, as a full-time chaplain? We had uh, been utilizing local uh, pastors in the community to do visits. And, and so they wanted to take it up a notch and, and, and do a more professional approach. And, and uh, you know, it was with some trepidation that I took, took on that role. And um, I guess as I was looking for maybe some kind of confirmation that I was doing the right thing, one of the first patients I went to see was a, a dear lady who was, I'd been told she was frightened. She was dying and she knew it and she wanted to bargain with God. She would, she would accept life in the bed, life in a wheelchair, whatever it was, just let her live. And so as I went to visit with her, we asked a lot, I asked a lot of questions and listened to her responses. And, and um, she, she asked me if, if, there's anything I could tell her to, to give her some peace about all of this. And, and we talked about, you know, God's mercy and his grace. And um, at the end of that visit, she, uh, she came to a place of faith and from her family's reports, she died about four days later, I think, and never expressed fear again after that. She was at peace. That was a very strong confirmation for me that I was doing the right thing. And I've had many such things happen since then. Wow, that's a that's a really powerful story. What a storied sort of career, right? That led you to where you are from growing up um, uh, in a family that was sort of very engaged in ministry um, mm -hmm. to working in ministry to then working in business um, and then coming into hospice and then finding your way back into this sort of mix, right? Yeah. Um, between uh, health and well-being and uh, your work um, in the pastorate. So um, as, as we think about, you know, this intersection, this really interesting intersection of faith and uh, health and spirituality that we've been exploring over the last um, several weeks, um, can you sort of make a comparison. You have a really unique um, experience. You've worked both in, the, in a community pastorate role, and then you've worked also as a, as a hospice chaplain. Right. Can you draw some comparisons and contrasts between those two, or maybe they're really similar? Well, there's some similarity. There's some overlap. Um, I guess the similarities are that you, you have to go into either uh, environment with a genuine love for people and truly caring about them, or you're not going to be effective in either situation. 
Uh, some of the differences are that in a, in a parish setting, uh, you, a lot of your focus is on preaching and teaching and administration. Um, when I was in seminary, I, I, um, I had no visions of myself being a counselor. I, 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 we, we had uh, the possibility of taking CP, clinical pastoral education, we call it CPE, while I was at Duke. And, um, but I couldn't do that because I was married with two children and, and um, uh, work, serving a parish. So I, I had a kind of an arrogant uh, <laughs> attitude about it that these, these young upstarts were uh, searching for validation in a lab jacket. But um, and looking back, I wish I had done that. But I didn't. I didn't consider myself a counselor, and, and wasn't looking for it. But it came looking for me, and and I found over time that uh, those were some of the things that God had gifted me with is just a, a ability to zero in on stuff, and and um, in talking with people who are going through, you know, profound grieving situations or or critical life situations, that somehow I could see through the layers and, and zero in on, on where the root problem was. And so I carried that with me all those years. And um, so as I've been with hospice over these 24 years, it's hard to believe, but um, I have found myself in hundreds of counseling situations uh, with people with very, very complicated grief and, and traumatic losses of all kinds. You, if you can imagine it, I've dealt with it probably. Sure. But, um, and as the people will attest to you that I've, I've counseled with, it, it, it all went well for me um, and for them. And there were people who, who I, I feel like that I was used to, to dramatically help them in, in some of their situations. I feel like I've done more hands-on ministry in any given year with this agency than, than I really did in, in the parish uh, mm-hmm. serving local churches. It's um, you, For one thing, when you're in a parish situation, people have their facades on, they're, they're going to uh, go through the motions and you might not get it on the inside of who these people are in, in the situation where families are facing uh, imminent dying or a patient is facing it, or there's been a, been a loss, uh, it, it kind of peels away the layers. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've come to understand is that counseling is, is like a series of concentric circles. Hmm. And, and people are putting into the test. They're going to they may not know that they're doing it. But they're going to say something. And if you respond in the right way, then you get inside the next circle and the next circle. And, and um, that's kind of been one of the things that has given me the most satisfaction in this work. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think about as you were talking, um, you know, that I think many people who are listening to this might be thinking about as they think about either themselves or someone they know or someone they, they have known in the past is, you know, we, we go through this life with a lot of different emotions um, and we navigate those really differently at various times in our lives. And one of the things I know that um, I've heard both from folks who work in community pastorate um, to folks who work in clinical chaplaincies, not in hospice, and, and who are just faith leaders in and of themselves, 
Um, they talk about this sort of this journey from sort of bargaining to acceptance. Right. Um, and then, you know, from fear to peace. Um, and you alluded to that, I think, in your in your very first story that you that you told when we first opened this with sure. uh, the, the very first patient that you that you talked about um, that you encountered that was very affirming to you, knowing letting you know that you were in the very right place, um, that she went from fear to some sort of, of peace and comfort. Mm -hmm. um, over a very short period of time. Right. Um, can you talk about what that looks like for people and, and, and how that sort of, you know, really is informed by our faith and spirituality? Sure. We, um, all of us go through life with an assumptive worldview, meaning that we don't anticipate the crises that are going to come about. We, we assume that our lives are going to unfold pretty much as we expect with some minor surprises here and there. And then one day you, you, you determine something's not right with me and you go to the doctor and you just assume it's going to be nothing. They're going to give you something. You'll feel better. And the doctor looks at you with the furrowed brow and, and you can tell, well, something's wrong here. And, and to, you go for more tests and you hope the test results are going to be good and and they turn out not to be good and can you talk about um treatment options and, and what's going to work what's not going to work and and you go through good reports and good numbers and good markers and the bad reports and eventually you come to the place where you you realize that you're really facing your own mortality, and then you get the word that that you're not going to beat this, you're not going to survive this. So all through that, hope has already undergone a lot of modifications. You mm -hmm. hope for this, and that didn't happen. You hope for that. And so you find yourself hoping that that the pain won't be too bad. You, you hope that the, the loss of uh, dignity and, and self-control, that that you're not going to be a burden to your family. You hope that you make it to see the grandchild being born, whatever those things are. And meaning and, and your faith undergoes some modification throughout all of that as well. Um, and so grieving actually starts long before there's a death event. Mm -hmm. you grieve the loss of that assumptive worldview. You, you realize that, you know, you've retired and you're going to buy the Winnebago and tour the country. And all of a sudden everything's off, you know, everything's off the table. And so a person who has a sustaining faith in the midst of all of this has a much better chance of, of not saying you're not, not going to struggle or feel depressed or, or scared, but ultimately uh, your faith or your spirituality is one thing that, that's hopefully going to, to stand the test of all of these assaults and be something that will serve as an anchor to get you through what, what you are about to embark upon, what you're already experiencing. Um, and as far as how that happens, how people make those transitions, it's just time for one thing. Sure. Um, you're not going to get fast answers. You're not going to arrive quickly. Uh, the, the lady I spoke of, 
that was an exceptional situation and, and it was an urgent situation that needed to be addressed and, and she was ready to address it. Um, other folks, maybe not so ready. Uh, and you have, to, you have to ask good questions. You have to listen for their answers. You have to not only hear what they're saying, but you have to hear what they're feeling and let them know that they've been heard, not only in their content, but, but their feelings. When they understand that they have been understood in a very empathic way, then they're going to open up and, and share more. And, and being seriously ill is a very lonely experience to start with. Sure. And um, even if you're surrounded by family and friends, you, you struggle to have somebody there that you, you feel like really understands something about what you're going through. And that's part of my role to, to do that. And also to model uh, that kind of communication to family members who perhaps, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to be. You know, you mentioned, um, I think what you described is this concept of redefining hope, hope. And in your assumptive worldview, I think is the term that you used. Um, you know, we, we conceptualize what hope is, right? So at 15 years old, we're hoping that we're going to get our driver's license at 16. And then when we graduate high school, we're hoping we're going to graduate college. And, you know, all of these sort of life uh, moments, these milestone moments that happen in our life are very aspirational. Sure. Um, and, um, and are, you know, oftentimes longer range in our view, right? Many years out, um, perhaps, um, you know, you're, you're thinking about now I'm getting ready to, you're getting ready to buy Winnebago maybe, right? Because you're, you're retiring, but, but that, that redefining that you've talked about and that assumptive worldview really changes pretty drastically. It does. Um, and, and so when we, you know, oftentimes in my own, you know, almost 30 years of healthcare experience in working with people or families who have loved ones who have serious illness, it, it there is, there is this really, there's a, oftentimes a concerted discussion related to, we are so prayerful, we're so hopeful of a miracle and mm -hmm. realizing that in an assumptive worldview, that miracle means a full healing. Right. But but there is a there is a difference in what we can feel spiritually and what we can realize medically. We can hope for many things, but right. but we can only do so much. And so then that redefining of hope, then I imagine also means that that perhaps we begin to reformulate our own construct of what a miracle might even look like. That's exactly right. Um... I find that that search for miracles uh, oftentimes among uh, people who have a faith tradition involvement in the church. Um, I, I see it a lot in, in what I would call a hyper faith uh, mm. brand of, of Christianity, where people believe that that it's always God's will to heal, and, and that if you don't get healed, it's lack of faith on your part. But sometimes we have to to remember that the scriptures tell us it's appointed once to every one of us to die. And we have that appointment to keep and something has to take us out of here. It's not just going to happen. We're, we're, we'll go through a, it could be a car accident. It could be 
uh, terminal illness. It could be just any number of things, but something has to take us out of here. The second thing that, that folks have to understand is that any healing that we get in this world is temporary. And, and the only, mm-hmm. the only permanent healing is, is in eternity. And, and um, so that's, that's something that, you know, I have to work with people to, to help them to understand that um, and to help them understand that they're not alone, that, that, sure. that their faith, their spirituality is something that's not going to forsake them. Uh, and, and that, you know, God is going to be with them throughout all of this. Um, so redefining hope is also redefining what's possible. Hmm. We can't do this, but what are the things that we can do? And so we try to find ways of, of helping a patient and a family to, to realize some things that, that they actually can do. Uh, one of our patients was a farmer. And the one thing he wanted was to go sit on his tractor one more time. And, and the nurse and the social worker helped him to do that. Uh, we've, we had a nurse, when I first started here, there was a nurse and we couldn't do this now, but her, her patient, the one thing she wanted to do is go to the beach one last time. The family had it all set up and uh, then something happened and they couldn't go. Well, this nurse took personal vacation time and took this person to the beach. Now, wow. obviously that's not something we can do. We've got boundaries and all that, but what, what can we do? What kinds of things can, can we do to help this person feel a little more connected with what gave their life meaning before? Uh, whether it's uh, a ride in the car or going to get ice cream one more time or, or, or you know, any number of things. You try to redefine what is possible, not just focus on what you can't do. Yeah. You know, you just touched on something, Tim, that that um, resonated with me. Um, and that is that there is tremendous kindness um, yes. in our world. And one of the things I know that has been so interesting for me as we have explored, as I have explored this this intersection between faith, health, and spirituality um, is this notion that there is an interesting juxtaposition between kindness and suffering. And those seem so different, but, you know, not all kindness is accompanied by suffering, but much suffering is really accompanied by kindness, kindness of strangers, of friends, of family, um, of, you know, and, and I see that sometimes, um, as probably a great comforting, um, component, particularly for people of, of great faith, when they feel as though they are trying to reconcile this suffering with their, with not believing, Mm -hmm that their suffering is their penance, right? Because this is not appended to something they did in their life, but, but that there's, they're suffering currently either physical or emotional or spiritual suffering can be accompanied by a tremendous outpouring of kindness. Yes. And that's, that's another redefinition of what constitutes a miracle. Mm. You have somebody that, that feels completely alone, whether it's the caregiver or the, the patient himself or herself, and um, then, as you said, the kindness of strangers, whether it's uh, personnel with our agency, 
folks in the church or the community coming by and, and doing acts of kindness, providing very, very practical kinds of support and assistance for people who are suffering and who are in need. Uh, they will see this as, as an absolute miracle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think they're right to do that because uh, I, I really believe that there is a goodness uh, in, in God and in, in our spirituality that um, enables people to receive the kindness of other people, the compassion of other people. And it not only gives them a sense of, of being loved, cared for, and understood, but also a sense that they can see in other people a kindness that, that really pours a different kind of healing into their wounded souls. Mm. Um, and, and people are dealing with the, those kinds of feelings. Would you say that that kindness, I think you just said that kindness that is sort of helps to fill their soul mm-hmm. um, also helps to make them whole because part of what they are looking for is this sort of spiritual wholeness because a part of them in some way they feel is broken. Oh yeah. Very broken. Um, on, on, not only in the level of their physical illness and emotion, the emotional content that accompanies all that, but all the way down into the soul there, there is a sense of, of, I am broken and I need to feel whole. I need to feel like, like I'm the same person that I was, maybe changed in some ways for the better. But uh, when, when you've lost part of your body or you, you, you're losing the fight against an illness, there is a very profound sense of brokenness. And wholeness is not just... You know, we we typically define wholeness as getting over whatever illness we have and, and feeling strong and healthy again. Well, wholeness on the level of the soul is is a healing that that defies the fact that my body is breaking down and it's not going to serve me much longer. But there is a sense inside of me, in the person that I am on an existential level, that I. And, and there's a healing that's happening inside my heart and my soul, even though my body is not being healed. And, and so as we know that disease and, and, and particularly advanced illness sort of affects not just the patient, but everybody around them, their entire family. Most definitely. Um, you know, as you watch, I mean, you've had a really interesting ringside seat to this at the bedside. As you watch this wholeness sort of begin to evolve through the redefining of our assumptive worldview, through the redefining of hope, through the reformulation of our own personal view of miracles, as you begin to see people reach this wholeness, do you then also see that it sort of spreads out much like the concentric circles that you talked about earlier? Do you begin to see that then extend to the family and then do you see, I'm just curious, do you see their anxieties, you know, go from really high to a bit more moderate to now everybody's calm? I see a lot of that. Um, to what degree it varies. Sure. A person's temperament and the situation. But um, one of the biggest 
sources of anxieties for families and caregivers is, you know, am I going to know what, what to expect? Am I going to know what to do? And if this happens or that happens and, and part of the holistic approach of, of hospice care is that the family is being supported not only with, with emotional support and medical uh, interventions of one kind or another to, to address pain and symptoms, but also they're, they're being supported in a way that, that gives them a confidence that they can do what they thought they could never do. And as they see a patient beginning to, to settle down and, and take on a more peaceful affect and, and um, for that patient to be able to express what he or she is feeling and, and to see the changes in it, um, one of the things that I see is, is I develop a, a strong relationship, let's say, with a patient and his wife, and, and um, you know, they look forward to the visits, and I look forward to them as well. And um, as, as there, there's something about just a ministry of presence, that you're there, you're not trying to push an agenda, you're not trying to get 20 questions answered, you're listening, you, you're, you're asking questions about who this person is and what's, what's your life been? And uh, what have you been interested in the past? What did you two like to do together? And, and just to get a feel and, and they feel more and more at peace and at, at, at ease. And so you see a patient just, um, even though they're having pain, maybe increased, um, there's still a sense that, you know, I know my, my husband or my wife is going to be uh, on the level of soul, they're going to be okay. Um, and I can, I can accept uh, what's in the future a little easier, and it just is an incremental thing. It, it's incrementally easier for them to, to, to find that place of peace and acceptance. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, The Intersection of Faith and Health at End of Life. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation with Trent and Tim about how intersections in an individual's life journey not only shape how they live, but also how they die by providing opportunities to engage hope, increase well-being, and overcome fears at end of life. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.